Thank you, Tyler, for leading us. Jake's out of town with the college group this morning, so we appreciate Tyler filling in. Take your Bible, find 1 John chapter 5. You can take your bulletin out. There's some notes uh, where you can track along with some of the things we're going to talk about. 1 John 5, our passage is verse 6 to verse 12. Several of the Bible commentaries I read this week suggested that this passage, 1 John 5, 6 to 12, is the most, quote, perplexing passage in the entire book of 1 John. A few even went so far as to say it's one of the most perplexing passages in the entire New Testament. I don't know that I'd go quite that far, but it's certainly one of the trickier passages in 1 John. There is a textual issue that we're going to discuss, and then there is an interpretive issue that we're going to discuss before we really jump in and talk about what John's saying to us. So we'll start with the textual issue. In the King James Version, some of you still read uh, out of the King James Version of the Bible. In the King James Version of the Bible, 1 John 5, 7 reads like this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And those words in italics are in italics because there is a question as to whether or not John originally wrote those words. So again, if you're looking at a King James translation of the Bible, you'll find the entirety of verse 7 as you see it here on the screen. If you're reading a newer translation of the Bible, you probably won't find that last part of verse 7 in your copy of the Scriptures. And so there's a long backstory here. I want to give you just one snippet of the backstory that will kind of help you understand what's going on here. Dial the clock back with me all the way to 1520. And I want to tell you about a man named Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus was a scholar. He was a humanist scholar. He wanted to go back to the original source of the New Testament. In his day, most people read the Bible in Latin. The original Greek manuscripts had been translated into Latin. That's what the church read. That's what the church taught out of. Erasmus wanted to go back to the Greek. So in 1520, he set out to make a Greek New Testament. He didn't want a Latin translation. He wanted the original. So he gathered together all of the best Greek manuscripts that he could find. And when he came to 1 John 5, 7, there was a bit of an awkward issue. In the Latin Vulgate, that ending to verse 7 had been added in at some point. But when Erasmus looked at all the Greek manuscripts, it was nowhere to be found. And when he read the old church fathers from the earliest days of church history, men who argued about the Trinity a lot, no one quoted the entirety of verse 7 in their reference or their arguments about the Trinity. And so Erasmus said, I'm not going to include it. I know that it had been added into the Latin, and he left it off. And that made people mad. People felt like he was taking things out of the Bible. And Erasmus popped off. He said, I'm not going to put it in, but if you can produce one manuscript, just one, one manuscript that contains the entirety of verse 7, I'll put it in to my Greek New Testament. No one could produce it. He left it off. Two years later, 1522, somebody showed up with a quote-unquote manuscript that had all of verse 7. And Erasmus was not happy. He thought it was a forgery. He said, you have made this up. This is not real. But he said, I'll keep my word. He put the rest of verse 7 in to his Greek New Testament. And over in the side, he put a footnote that said, I don't think this belongs here. I think this manuscript 
was a forgery. Fast forward a few years, a man named Stephanus in 1550 used Erasmus's text to have a, a newer, updated edition of the Greek New, text, New Testament. That became what we call the Textus Receptus, or the received text, and that became the foundation for the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. And we have this English tradition of the Scriptures that has the entirety of verse 7. The question is, when you go back to the original manuscripts, is that last little part of verse 7 there, or is it not there? In your King James versions, you'll find all of it. In most other modern English translations, you don't find it. You say, this, what, what does this matter anyways? Well, from time to time on social media, I'll see somebody share a side-by-side screenshot of the Scriptures. And on one side, there will be the King James Version, and on the other side, there will be some modern translation. And the King James will have a few extra words in it, and this modern translation, for example, 1 John 5, 7, will have fewer words. And the suggestion will be, look, these new English translations are editing the Bible. They're taking things out of the Bible. They're embarrassed about what's in the Bible, and they're changing it. And I just want to tell you, when you see those posts, when you hear that argument, it's very misleading. It's really not the situation at all. Erasmus in 1520 knew that these words weren't in the original text. All of the manuscripts we've discovered since 1520, and there's a mountain of them, testify that those words are not in the original. The situation is not that your modern English translation has too few words. The situation probably is that the King James has a few extra words in this case. And in verse 7, the extra words that are, are added are not necessarily bad doctrine. They're just not what John put in the original. And so if you have questions about that, we'll talk about it. I'd love to visit with you but I want you to trust your English translation. And when you look at this, maybe it has a footnote. Maybe your uh, verse 7 has all of these words. Maybe it doesn't. More than likely, John did not write these italicized words. Now, that's the textual issue. Let's talk about the interpretive issue. Bible scholars debate the meaning of blood and water. We're going to read those words in this passage. I think the most likely interpretation of blood and water connects water to Jesus' baptism and blood to Jesus' crucifixion. Okay? There's a whole host of interpretive options. Here's the three most popular. Number one, some scholars say John's talking about the crucifixion. Do you remember John chapter 19 when Jesus is on the cross and they pierce his side with a spear? And John in chapter 19 says, Blood and water flowed from his side. And there's some medical things going on there that are important when you think about crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And some people say when he talks about water and blood here, that's the reference to John 19. That's a possible interpretation. It's not the one that I would favor. Some prefer a sacramental interpretation. And they say when you read blood and water, water's talking about Christian baptism and blood is talking about the Lord's Supper as we celebrate it today. I don't think that's what John's driving at. It's a mixed metaphor if you think about it because water is the object we use in baptism. Blood is the thing that we're symbolizing 
in baptism. It's a little bit crossways, and I don't think that's exactly John's point. I think what John's talking about when he talks about water and blood is the baptism of Jesus and what that teaches us about who Jesus is and the crucifixion of Jesus and what that teaches us about what Jesus came to accomplish. So I'd, I'd prefer this third view, and that's how we're going to operate this morning. And I really think that some of this falls into place and becomes a little bit more clear when you think about the big picture purpose of 1 John. We've talked about this week in and week out. John wrote this letter so that believers might have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. He's writing to Christians. He wants us to have assurance. He wants us to have certainty. He wants us to know that we truly know Jesus. And that's 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This passage, maybe as much as any other in 1 John, helps us to find this certainty and this assurance. Here's the big idea of the verses we're about to read. God has provided sufficient evidence for sinners to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. God has provided sufficient evidence for sinners to believe in Jesus and to receive eternal life. It's almost in this passage as if John is calling witnesses to the stand. And as we listen to their testimony, our faith is strengthened. Our our faith is encouraged. Remember, he's writing to believers and he wants us to have certainty. This passage helps us to find that certainty. So look with me at 1 John chapter 5. We'll read verse 6 down to verse 12. Word of God says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage in 1 John, and we see the big point of this book clearly. John wants us to have certainty. The Spirit inspiring John to write these words wants us to have assurance of our salvation in Jesus. And Lord, as we listen to the testimony of these witnesses this morning, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ would walk away with a stronger, more certain, more confident faith. And Lord, those who may be here or may be listening who do not believe in Jesus, we pray that you would open their eyes 
to this testimony, to this evidence that's being set before them. Lord, we pray that our faith would be strengthened. We pray that those who do not believe in Jesus would believe, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about a guy named Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell lived in uh, 1872 to 1970. A lot of historians say that Russell is the most influential philosopher of the 20th century. Most of them point out he's not the best philosopher of the 20th century, but he's the most influential philosopher of the 20th century. He was an avowed atheist. He did not believe the Bible. He did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe that there was a God. And he spent a large part of his career arguing against the Christian faith and against the Christian conception of God. In fact, in 1927, he wrote a book, and that book was titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Straight to the point. I'm not a Christian, and here's why. He wanted to convince people that he was right, and if they believed in the, the biblical idea of God, that they were wrong. One time a reporter asked Russell, if at the end of your life you were to die and then suddenly find yourself standing before the God that you spent your entire life arguing against, what would you say in that moment? Here was Russell's answer. He said, I probably would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? He wanted evidence. He wanted proof. He wanted more to go on when it came to believing or not believing in God. If it's proof and evidence and testimony that you're after, John's your guy. And in particular, 1 John 5 6 to 12 is your passage. Because John in this passage is calling a series of witnesses. And you can pick up on the legal courtroom vibe of the passage when you pay attention to a few words. In your English Bible, these words show up like this. Testify, born, and testimony. There's two Greek words behind these English words. And the Greek words are martyreo and martyria. It's the Greek root that we get our English word martyr from. A martyr is someone who testifies to the truth about Jesus, even to the point of death. Right? These are the witnesses, the testimonies that John is setting before us, hoping to strengthen and encourage our faith in who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish in his life, death, and his resurrection, and most importantly, in the eternal life that he offers to us as sinners. So, very simply, who are the witnesses that testify about Jesus? There's six of them. Here's witness number one. It's Jesus' baptism. That's the first witness or the first testimony that John sets before us. This is 1 John 5, 6, 7, and 8 when John talks about water. He keeps talking about water. I think he's talking about Jesus' baptism. I want you to think about the testimony that took place when Jesus was baptized. First of all, the whole thing was carried out by a man named John the Baptist, a man who was a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord's Messiah. His entire life and ministry was designed to point people to the Messiah, to the Christ. When Jesus is baptized, God the Father speaks 
from heaven. And he says, this is my son, and I'm pleased with him. And then the gospel writers tell us that as Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven in this sort of visible, in some way, shape, or form, anointing on Jesus. All of these witnesses in that moment saying, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the promised Christ. It was a strange moment to be sure. John the Baptist understood just how strange it was. In fact, when Jesus came to be baptized, John objected. John's out in the wilderness calling people to confess their sin and repent of their sin. Here comes the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, and John says, whoa, 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 this whole thing's upside down and backwards. You should be baptizing me. He understood that Jesus was out of place in a baptism of repentance. That's sort of the reason Jesus came to identify with sinners, to live amongst, to tabernacle amongst sinners. In his baptism, he identifies with sinners. He's not repenting, but he's identifying with us and ultimately at the cross. He's not dying for his sin. He's dying for our sin. It's why he came, to identify with us, to to walk amongst us, to live for us, and to die for us. Witness number one. Jesus' baptism. Witness number two, we just talked about it, Jesus' crucifixion. This is verse 6, 7, 8. John says, he came by water and blood. And then he makes his point even more clear. Look what he says in verse 6. Not water only, but water and blood. Most Bible scholars read 1 John And they understand that in John's day, there were false teachers floating around in the church. And John is confronting that false teaching with this letter. One of the false teachings floating around in John's day and age, promoted by a man we know from church history as Serenthus, was that Jesus didn't really have to die. Serenthus was happy to talk about Jesus. He loved the stories about Jesus. He talked about Jesus' baptism. He talked about the miracles. Uh, He loved the story of Jesus feeding the crowd with the small boy's lunch. Uh, He loved the, the moral teachings of Jesus. All of these things were great with him, but what he had a problem with is the idea that Jesus would be crucified, that the Christ would be crucified. 2,000 years later, this same sort of teaching exists today. There are people preaching, teaching, blogging, podcasting, posting, who are happy to talk about Jesus. They love to talk about Jesus. When it suits them, they're happy to quote Jesus. They'll invoke his name for their own agendas. But when you start to talk about Jesus, bloody, naked, crucified in humiliating shame on a cross, you start to talk about the wrath of the Father being poured out on Jesus at the cross for our salvation, those same people start to backpedal and they say, well, that sounds kind of grotesque. That sounds kind of primitive. That's not the kind of God that we would want to worship, the God who would require such a sacrifice. They're happy to talk about Jesus. They're happy to invoke his name, but when you start to drill down on the cross, they're uncomfortable. 
This is not a new teaching. It's an old teaching. Think about the cross and the testimony that was born in that moment. Gospel authors tell us that the sky was darkened supernaturally. Gospel authors tell us that Scripture was being fulfilled moment by moment. At Jesus' death, there was an earthquake. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Matthew says the tombs were opened and people who had died came out alive. The gospel authors tell us that there was a centurion overseeing the whole thing who in that moment, taking in all this testimony, added to it by saying, certainly, surely, this was the Son of God. There's truth about Jesus being revealed, not only in his baptism, but also in his crucifixion. Witness number three, the Holy Spirit. John adds the Holy Spirit to this mix. Verse six, seven, and eight, he says, the Spirit agrees with the testimony of the water, the Spirit agrees with the testimony of the blood and Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. The Spirit is promoting and advancing and agreeing with this witness. It's what the Holy Spirit does. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago, Gospel of John, chapter 16. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit speaks what is true. Always and only what is true. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's to point men, women, boys, and girls who are lost and dead in their sins to the truth about Jesus. And John adds it to the mix here and he says there is the testimony of the baptism, there's the testimony of the cross, and there's the testimony of the spirit all of which showing you, telling you, testifying to you, this is who Jesus is, this is what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and this is the eternal life that he's offering you. Witness number four, we'll just round out the Trinity here. Witness number four is God the Father. Look at verse nine. John talks about the testimony of men and the testimony of God, and he says here's the testimony of God that he's born concerning his Son. That's how we know he's talking about God the Father because it's God talking about his Son. The Father talking about the Son. You see the same thing in verse 10. There is a testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And John makes an interesting sort of side point here. He says, look, we receive the testimony of men. We subpoena people, we call them to a court of law, they put their hand on a Bible, they raise their hand, they take an oath, they say that they'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we accept that. And he simply says here, how much more should we listen to the testimony of the Father? Look, people like Bertrand Russell can argue all they want that there's not enough evidence. John disagrees. And he says the Father is not without testimony, he's not without a witness, He has spoken concerning his son. Witness number five, we're going to call inner conviction. Inner conviction. Look what he says in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Has the testimony in himself. A couple of weeks ago, Brooke and I were at Market Street. We were checking out. Uh, I try to be selective when I go to Market Street. There are some checkers I want to avoid and some checkers I'd like to go to. 
It's based on their speed and their friendliness. And a couple of weeks ago, we went to my favorite checker, and he was checking us out, and we were visiting with him. He began to tell me, this guy's sort of somewhere in between acquaintance and friend. He began to tell me about some of his loved ones. In particular, he began to tell me about the spiritual experiences that some of his loved ones had had recently. And he sort of was telling me this sort of long, rambling story. We, we buy a lot of groceries at one time, and so he had a lot of time to tell this story. And he came to the end of it, and he said, he knows I'm a preacher. He knows I'm the pastor here. He said, well, what do you think about all that? And I didn't want to get in a big shouting match right there. I wanted to pay for my groceries and go home. But I said, you know, some of the stuff you're describing doesn't really line up with the Bible. Like some of the things that they are saying happened, they just don't really line up with Scripture. And so I said, I'm, I'm skeptical that that really happened. I believe something happened. I, I'm not trying to say that they don't think something happened, but, you know, is it real? Is it legit? Is it bona fide? I, I'm pretty skeptical. It just doesn't line up with the Scripture. Some of you may have had the experience in your life of visiting with a Mormon missionary. A lot of times a Mormon missionary will share their testimony, their conversion experience with you. And one of the things they'll often say is, in the moment of my conversion, I had this feeling. Sometimes they call it a a burning in the bosom. I had this just gut instinct feeling that this was right. And maybe you have that right now. I don't doubt that people have feelings. I just know that I'm not going to become a Mormon and join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because a college kid had a feeling about something. Your feelings are not always reliable. Your feelings change from day to day. The experiences you have may or may not line up with the Scripture. We cannot always trust our spiritual experiences or our feelings about spiritual things. I want to drill that home to you so clearly. It is not enough to simply say, well, I had this experience or, well, I have this feeling about a certain spiritual topic. At the same time, I want to acknowledge what John seems to be acknowledging, and that is that when a person accepts the testimony of the water, Jesus' baptism, he is who he claimed to be, They accept the testimony of the cross. He accomplished what he set out to accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection. They accept the testimony of the spirit of truth, the testimony of God the Father. John says at that point, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And without being too touchy-feely, experiency we should acknowledge that there is an inner conviction that the Holy Spirit creates in God's people. And I'm not saying you feel this conviction all the time. You may go through seasons where you question the truth. You question your salvation. That's why John wrote this book, to help you know. But there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit convicts us. Jesus talked about this. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning truth and righteousness, what's real and what's not real. There's this inner conviction that tells us this is right, this is true. One last witness, eternal life. Eternal life. may seem like a strange witness because we think of eternal life as something out there in the future. 
But look how John talks about it in verse 11 and 12. I think sometimes we misunderstand eternal life. John says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Notice he doesn't say God will give us eternal life. That's how we think about it sometimes, right? We think eternal life. Yeah, that's what you get when you die. You go to heaven. Sometimes we just put an equal sign in between those two things. Eternal life equals heaven in the afterlife. That's not how John thought of eternal life. He says God has given us eternal life. We're not dead yet, but we already have it. He has given us eternal life. Think about how Jesus talked about eternal life. I'll give you just a few examples. Jesus said to the woman at the well, eternal life is like having your spiritual thirst quenched. He said to a group of Jewish people who were physically hungry, eternal life is like having your spiritual hunger satisfied. Jesus said to Mary and Martha, eternal life is like the resurrection of the dead on the last day. He told his disciples, eternal life is like abundant life, and you don't have to wait for it till later. You can experience it now. Jesus told his disciples just before he was crucified, he said, this is eternal life, that you know the Son and you know the Father who sent the Son. You don't have to wait for heaven to know the Son and to know the Father. You can know God now. He has given us eternal life. It's not a prize that you win. It's not something that you earn or work for. It's a gift that you receive. And John very clearly says it is only found in Jesus. Look what he says in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Not will have life in the end, but has it. If you have Jesus today, then you have eternal life Today, flip side, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's only found in Jesus. We see this throughout the New Testament. I'll give you just a few examples. Paul tells Timothy there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of mediators. There's just one, only one. Look at Acts 4.12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This life is only found in Jesus. But you don't have to wait till you die to get it. You get it now. And John says this is one of the witnesses, is that you have this resurrection, this eternal, this true, abundant life now. It's telling you something about who Jesus is, about what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and about the life that you can have through Jesus. At some point, you've got to wrestle with the testimony of these witnesses. You've got to think it through. You've got to pray it through. You've got to come to grips with, do I believe these witnesses Do I not believe these witnesses? And I've got news for you. There's six in this passage. There's many others that we could talk about. We could talk about John the Baptist specifically. I know we talked about him as it relates to the baptism, but John the Baptist pointed people to the truth about Jesus. He said, look, this is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He called people to repentance to prepare their hearts 
to receive Jesus. Jesus told the Jewish leaders that his signs were a witness that he was who he claimed to be. And he challenged them. He said, look, if you're not going to believe on any other basis, believe because of the signs that I've performed. You've seen them. Jesus talked about the Old Testament bearing witness to the truth about who he is. After the resurrection, he walks with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he opens the scriptures, the Old Testament, showing how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. We could talk about Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and that declaration goes out to every language, to every person. We could talk about Romans 1 and 2. Paul says, look, internally there are some things we just know about God. We suppress them, we deny them, but deep down we know these things to be true. I don't know exactly how the conversation went back in 1970 when Bertrand Russell passed from this life to the next life. He did find himself standing before the God that he had spent his life denying. And I do know, and you hopefully agree, that the issue in that moment wasn't a lack of evidence. The issue in that moment was sin. Sin is not just a Bertrand Russell problem. Sin is a human problem. The good news of the gospel is that God has done something to deal with our sin problem. He's not left it to us to stand before him on the last day with some sort of solution or fix to our own sin problem. He sent his son. Not only has he sent his son to live for us and to die for us and to offer us eternal life, but he's given us witness after witness after witness after witness, testifying to the truth about who Jesus is, testifying about what he's accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and testifying about the eternal life that can be ours in Jesus. You look at this passage, you come away knowing, I can turn from my sin and believe in Jesus. Not only can I believe in him, but I can know that I know Jesus and that God has given me 